Good morning. Thank you for joining us from wherever you are on this beautiful first Sunday of May the 2nd, 2021. And I pray that you are keeping well and uh, enjoying uh, God's creation outdoors and as well this opportunity to gather to hear from his word. I'd like to remind you uh, as well, in addition to our online service, we're also offering an outdoor drive-in service outside on the church parking lot. And unlike last time we did it, it's not minus 40 with the wind chill, so I'm looking forward to a little bit warmer temperatures uh, this time around. So if you'd like to join us, uh, we're going to be continuing with that uh, during the, these restrictions, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have some fun outdoors in the parking lot as well as we, as we worship in new and different ways in this time. Uh, we just kind of roll with the waves right now. And uh, we know God is faithful to see us through. And so uh, we continue to worship him. We continue to honor him. We continue to serve him. And uh, we, we know that uh, fellowship's a little bit different these days. But we still want to, uh, to reach out to one another in this shared faith that we have. And so let's continue to find uh, ways to do that. Uh, I would also remind you for our offering. Uh, you can send that in by mail to the Clarny Mennonite Church, Box 969, Clarny, Manitoba, R0K1G0. Or if you can stop by in person, there's an offering box here in the church foyer, and you can make all checks payable to the Clarny Mennonite Church. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's begin our service and our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning, and we thank you that you are our God in all seasons, in all times, whatever our challenges, you are God, and in you we find our rest. We thank you that this is just as true this morning as it's been through this past year, as it's been at any moment in our lives. And so thank you that you are here, that you are eager and ready to meet with us as we meet with, seek to meet with you. And so we ask simply your blessing on this time together upon each one of us, Lord, wherever we are, be with us, be near to us. May we sense your Holy Spirit. And Father, on this first Sunday of May, we are mindful of the farmers who are even now beginning to put seed into the ground. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon the farmers. May they be uh, able to do this in safety. We pray your blessing upon the seed because we know, Lord, that though we can put seed in the ground, it is only you who can cause it to germinate, to spring up and to grow and reproduce itself many times over. And so we ask that you would bless that seed. We think as well, Lord, of the spiritual parallel, that as the seed of your word goes forth, that it is only you who can cause it to germinate within a heart, to spring up into faith and to grow, Lord, into life that produces fruit for you. And so, Father, today as, as the seed of your word goes forth from this pulpit and from many others um, in our town and across the world, would you bless it, Lord, that it would indeed uh, germinate and, and grow into new life and to bring uh, abundant fruit, Lord, for you. And so we ask this, Father. We continue to pray, Lord, for our leaders in these times. Would you guide them by your spirit? We pray, Lord, for those who are sick and those who are struggling. We think of those uh, in Bayside. We pray for Marge Peters and many others, Lord, who who need a touch from you today. And so we just pray for them, Father. Be near to them. We pray, Lord, for those who are lonely, who those who are isolated and feel disconnected from others, Lord. Would you be near to them 
And may we who come in contact, Lord, find ways to, to encourage. We pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with anxiety or depression in these days. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would seek their, uh, their hope in you and that, Lord, you would provide hope and that you would provide healing uh, in whatever form. We welcome that, Father. We pray, Lord, uh, as well, that uh, you would provide favorable conditions, Lord, for, for ministries to continue to move forward. And we think especially of Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. We pray for their day camp program, Lord. We pray for family camps that are being planned. And even, Lord, the possibility of, of overnight camps later in the summer. We continue to pray, Lord, for the opportunity for those ministries to go forward so that our children, our youth, can hear the gospel and be transformed uh, by the love of Jesus. And so, Father, we pray for this. We pray for the youth in our community. We pray for our youth group. We pray for our children, Lord, that each one of them would come to know you in a personal way as both Savior and Lord. And so we ask this, Father, according to your will. And now I would invite you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 10 and verses 1 to 13. Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteous law. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes it in this way, the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So far, the reading of God's word. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it is living and active, and that by your spirit, you want to speak to our hearts and minds through it today. So we ask, Lord, bless it. Speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now today we resume our series in Romans to part 23, entitled God's Terms of Salvation. You will find within every people group and culture on earth a deeply held desire for salvation and for there to be life after death. In fact, our modern secular notion that there simply is no God, often referred to as atheism, is a rather modern phenomena. You only have to go back a couple of centuries and atheism was almost non-existent. Through all times and cultures, people have had a belief in a God or God's and some sort of afterlife. And so they seek to determine what are the terms for attaining salvation. Now, if you take the ancient Egyptians, for instance, they believed that the soul of the dead was presented to their prominent god named Osiris. And Osiris was then responsible for determining the virtue of that deceased soul and deciding which ones were deemed deserving of a peaceful, blessed afterlife and which ones were not. So if an Egyptian wanted to increase their chances of receiving a favorable verdict from Osiris, they would then seek to live their lives in a just manner, to act justly. And and part of that would be to follow the beliefs of the Egyptian creeds and religions. And most importantly, they would practice the proper burial rituals after a person's life had ended. For they believed that the bodies of the dead must be preserved in order for the dead to be reborn into the afterlife. And hence, that's where mummification comes from. That's why they would mummify the bodies to preserve them so that they could be reborn in the afterlife. In addition to being mummified, the more lavish and opulent the burial itself, the more favor the person would gain with Osiris, and therefore the better their afterlife would be. And so this is why the ancient pharaohs were buried in such elaborate tombs, some of them under the pyramids themselves, accompanied with all kinds of lavish artwork, riches, and provisions. All of these things to gain them a better afterlife. So in essence, the ancient Egyptians believed that in order to attain salvation, you had to either be very, very good, you had to be a very just person, or you had to simply be very, very rich and powerful. Those were the ancient Egyptians' terms of salvation. And as we turn now to Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, still speaking about his fellow Jews in Romans 10 verses 2 to 3, says this, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, the key line in this phrase is, they sought to establish their own righteousness. They tried to establish their own righteousness. So, Just like almost every other pagan belief system, the Jews also tried to earn or merit their own righteousness in order to gain favor with God by doing virtuous things and practicing religious rituals. Those were the Jews' terms of salvation. Not really all that different from the ancient Egyptians. Live virtuously, follow the right customs, God will find favor with that and you will be welcomed in to heaven. 
That, were, that was the Jews' terms of salvation. There was only one problem with this. Those were not God's terms of salvation. And the Jews simply refused, Paul says, they refused to submit themselves to receive God's salvation according to his terms. And there are many people, likewise, today, who still seek to attain salvation by their own terms rather than by God's. I I often say it's summarized by the Oprah Winfrey philosophy of the world, which is that all roads lead up to God. doesn't matter which road in particular you take, so long as you follow it sincerely. And that's sort of the pop philosophy of our day. But the Bible declares that this sort of philosophy is simply not true. And we see it in this passage. For notice in verse 2 that Paul emphasized that when it came to zeal, when it came to sincerity, the Jews were off the charts. Listen to what he said. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. So now let's think about Paul himself. Remember that before he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he was a Pharisee named Saul. And he actually described himself as such a zealous Pharisee that he was indeed a Pharisee of Pharisees. If there was a rule to be kept, if there was a virtue to be, to be lived out, if there was anything that he could possibly do to garner God's favor, he was doing it with zeal. And so Paul knew from his own life and from his fellow Jews' lives that a lack of zeal or sincerity was not their problem. So what was? Well, Paul continues, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Their zeal is not based on on knowledge. You see, you can have all the zeal in the world and all the sincerity, but those things alone are not enough. They must be connected to correct knowledge, correct knowledge of the truth. So you see, not just any old belief with any old belief system will do. As it's often said, you can be completely sincere, but be sincerely wrong. You see, we can't just make up our own terms for salvation. But sadly, that's exactly what many people continue to do. Back on May 25th, 1994, a deceased Pennsylvanian man named George Swanson was, according to his wishes, laid to rest and buried inside his beloved 84 Corvette sports car. The urn with his ashes was placed in the driver's seat. His favorite song, Engelbert Humperdinck's Release Me, was queued up on the cassette player. And a crane lowered his remains and his 84 Corvette into the three-plot-wide grave below where it was buried. And now before his death, George is reported to have said that he planned to drive his white Corvette down the highway to heaven and arrive at the pearly gates in style. That was George Swanson's plan, his personal terms of salvation. But now, just for the sake of argument, let's suppose that he really could roll up to the pearly gates in style in his 84 Corvette. Do you think that if he rolled up to those pearly gates and and God was there waiting for him, that he would just be so impressed by George's car that he would say, 
hey, George, nice ride, come on in. Of course not. That's not how it works. Rolling up to the pearly gates in a sports car, no matter how fancy, are not God's terms of salvation. And as outlandish as being buried in a Corvette might seem to us, there is likewise around the world today, including right here in our own town, a wide and wild array of beliefs that people have about life after death and how to gain salvation. But one of the things you'll find in almost every set of beliefs, no matter what religion or or person you talk to, a common thread you will find running throughout them all, whether Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and the various forms of New Age mysticism, the common thread is that one's salvation must somehow be earned by doing virtuous things and or practicing the correct religious rituals. Now, that is most certainly what the Jews of Paul's day believed. But with them in mind, in Romans 10, verse 4, Paul continues to say, Christ is the end of the law, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Another translation puts it like this. Christ is the culmination of the law. And this highlights what Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus, as God in the flesh, did what no descendant of Adam could do. He lived the perfect life and fulfilled every single righteous requirement of the law perfectly in the spirit and the letter. And in so doing, Christ became the fulfillment, the culmination, the end of the law, because he had done it all. He had kept it. He had fulfilled it. Because you see, for any other person, any other descendant of Adam, you and I included, To keep the entire law, but to fail on just one point, makes us guilty of breaking it all. And therefore, because, as Paul said earlier in Romans, because all have sinned, no matter how much human effort or zeal is put into keeping that law, it is simply powerless to make anyone righteous before God, not because there's something wrong with the law, but because there's something wrong with us. We simply cannot keep it. So to try to attain salvation through works, through zeal, through, through any sort of man-made effort or system is simply going to fail because, again, these are not God's terms of salvation. So then let's ask, what are God's terms of salvation? What are they? Well, the end of verse 4 states them. That there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. So God's terms of salvation are not by our own righteous or virtuous actions or by our following the correct religious rituals. It's simply by our right belief exercised by placing our faith in the truth who is Christ. And so it is to believe 
This is God's term for salvation. We put our belief or our faith in Christ alone to save us. And to confirm the place of faith in God's terms of salvation, Paul proceeds in verses 6 and 7 to remind us that righteousness is by faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, this is a very difficult section to understand, but in context, and if you do the digging into the Old Testament background that that Paul is quoting here, I'll, I'll just break it down for you. What he is saying is that all human effort to attain our own righteousness is utterly useless. There is no need whatsoever to find Christ by ascending up to the heights of heaven to try to somehow bring him down to our level. Nor is there any any value or need for us to travel down into the depths of the grave in search of Christ to somehow bring him back up. What, What Paul's emphasizing is there is no effort required on our part. There is nothing that we must do because Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ has already done it all. He is the end of the law. It is finished. It is done. He went into the grave. He, by the power of God, came back up of the, out of the grave and ascended back into heaven. It's already finished. Therefore, right this very moment, Jesus Christ is readily accessible to each and every one of us. All that remains for us to do, the one term, is to believe. And when we do, God freely forgives our sins. He clothes us in Christ's perfect righteousness. His righteousness covers us perfectly, and we are now perfect in Christ. And God sees us that way, and therefore he freely adopts us as children into his family without spot or blemish and with great joy. And so now, to whom do these terms apply? Who are these terms for? Who can receive them? Well, Paul already told us at the end of verse 4. He says that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Underline that word in your Bible. Everyone who believes. Later in verses 12 and 13, Paul further clarifies what he means by everyone. Listen to what he said. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, there's the word again, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So my friends, this is fantastic news because God's salvation applies equally and fully to everyone of all nations. It is open. The terms are for us all. And this means for people of all skin colors, all ethnicities, from the irreligious to the religious, from the bad to the good, the illiterate to the educated, the young to the old, the poor to the wealthy, the sick to the healthy, the weak to the strong, the foolish to the wise. It covers them all. And there's a lot of talk these days about racial justice and inequities in the world and discrimination. And yet, where is the answer? Will we as man find it within ourselves? No. 
Here is the answer. It is in God and in his salvation, freely, freely given to all mankind, of all people, high or low, of every station. It is for us all, and therefore the one Lord is Lord of all, and therefore we are all equal before him. There is no partiality shown. There is no higher or lower class within God's family. We are all children, dearly loved by our Heavenly Father. And so this is God's all-encompassing plan with the one non-negotiable term for salvation, believe in Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself declared in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one and only way. But now Paul knew that inevitably the religious-minded Jews would ask, but what must I do to believe in Jesus? What specific course of action must I take to ensure that I truly believe and am saved? Well, proceeding now through Romans 10, verses 8 to 13, Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, gives us the most clear and crisp instruction of specifically how to be saved that you will find in all of Scripture. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. So Paul says salvation is near you. It's as near as your own mouth and your own heart. And so that means wherever you are right now, you don't have to go anywhere to find salvation. Remember, you don't have to ascend. You don't have to descend. It's as near as your mouth and your heart. Now, maybe some of you, you, know, you might have to, with the mouth part, go and find your dentures. But apart from that, your mouth and your heart are always with you. Now, listen as Paul continues to verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So let's break down here the mechanics of salvation. Saving faith has just two parts. Two ingredients. One, inward belief. So inward belief, that is the heart component. This is ingredient number one. We must believe in our hearts. And the second part, the second ingredient, is outward confession. We must declare it with our mouth. So believe and confess. Those are the two parts. Those are the mechanics of salvation. That's it. And that's all. These two essential ingredients are inseparable. For inner belief without outer confession is to, in essence, deny the Lord. And to have outer confession without inner belief is only dead and dry religion. It's only lip service. In fact, I would go so far as to say that once true faith is birthed in someone's heart, it will and must inevitably work its way out of the mouth. For true saving faith simply cannot be contained within. For if it is, and there is no outward confession of faith, 
then that is not a faith that will save anyone. In Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus put it bluntly. He said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so here we see the essential component of confessing the Lord with our, with our lips, what has been birthed in our hearts by faith. And so these are God's twofold terms of salvation, non-negotiable and inseparably linked, believe and confess. Believe and confess. Now, there are many people who think, when they hear something like this, that this is just way too simple, and that there, must, there just must be something more that we have to do. In fact, I recall after one funeral service that I had led, in which I had presented the gospel of grace, the comment was made by someone in attendance that it just can't be that easy. It just can't be. But my friends, listen. It really is just that easy. In fact, it is by God's design that he has made salvation so simple and so attainable that even a young child can understand it and receive it. Take, for instance, my son Theodore. He was just four years old when one day, as just the two of us were driving through town, from the back seat I hear his little voice out of the blue ask me, Dad, are there lots of Christians in Killarney? Having no idea where this is going, I simply replied, Yes, son, there's lots of Christians in Killarney. Then he asked, Dad, is everyone a Christian in Killarney? And I replied, Well, no, not everyone in Killarney is a Christian. Well, that answer caused him to pause his questions for just a moment, and in that moment, I felt prompted to ask him a question of my own. So I asked him, Theo, are you a Christian? And without any hesitation, he quickly and cheerfully responded, yep. And so then, of course, me wanting to make sure that he understood what this actually meant, I I asked him, how do you know that you're a Christian? And again, without any hesitation whatsoever, Theo responded, because I believe in Jesus. Because I believe in Jesus. Now, he may have only been four years old. But for me as a father, in that moment, no pastor or theologian could have given me a better reply. Because it really is that simple. It really is that clear. Because I believe in Jesus. He professed with his mouth what was in his heart. As Paul said, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And so therefore, according to God's word, even a four-year-old child's inner belief in Jesus, accompanied by their outward verbal profession of that faith, will usher in God's free gift of salvation. But now let's go one step further and ask two questions about God's Two terms for salvation. Question number one. 
What specifically must we believe in our heart about Jesus in order to be saved? Well, if we look again at the middle of verse 9, Paul tells us what the specific belief must be. He says, Believe in your heart that God raised him, that is Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. As commentator Charles Hodge writes, Apart from Christ's resurrection, there is no salvation. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the supreme proof that his ministry was validated and successful. To believe that God has raised Christ from the dead includes the belief that Christ is all that he claims to be and that he accomplished all that he came to accomplish. And so you see, there are some who say that, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he existed and I believe that he was a good teacher. But then they stop short and they deny the resurrection. They deny the miraculous, the supernatural. And according to God's word, that sort of belief in Jesus will not save anyone. With Jesus, we either believe it all, the resurrection and all the miracles and all the supernatural, supernatural. we either believe it all or not at all. There is no middle ground. These are God's terms, and therefore, they are not open for us to negotiate or to revise to our liking. In order to be saved, we must believe in Jesus' resurrection and victory over death. And so now that we know specifically what we must believe about Jesus, the second question is this. What specifically must we confess with our mouth in order to be saved? Well, look again at the beginning of verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, I want you to notice that the saving declaration made from a heart of faith is not only Jesus is Savior, though that would be true. Jesus is Savior is a true statement, but Paul does not give that as the, as the, the declaration that would save someone. The, the declaration is Jesus is Lord. Now, why is he emphasizing Lord over Savior? Well, what's interesting, I find, is that in much of modern evangelical Christianity, we see there being a clear distinction drawn between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And it seems to me that the heaviest emphasis is always placed on Jesus as Savior. But in the entire New Testament, we find the exact opposite wherein Jesus is referred to as Savior a mere ten times. So ten times he's referred to as Savior. Whereas in contrast, Jesus is referred to as Lord over 700 times. So 700 to 10. The, the emphasis is heavily weighted upon Jesus as Lord. Now what I think is the reason that much of modern Christianity likes to emphasize Jesus as Savior rather than Jesus as Lord is because deep down, we want a Savior who can save us from hell. But we do not want a Lord to whom we must now fully submit our lives. But you see, the, the, the Scripture makes no such distinction. Quite simply, to receive Jesus as Savior is always and inseparably linked to making Jesus your Lord. 
The two must come together. If Jesus is Savior, then Jesus is Lord. And the original Greek word for our English term Lord is kurios, kurios, which signifies one with sovereign power and authority over others. Sovereign power and authority over others. So when you declare Jesus is Lord, what you are in fact declaring is that he is now the sovereign power and authority over your entire life and being. So make no mistake, this is no small declaration, Jesus is Lord. It's not a small thing to say. It's not a thing we say where we're submitting a a portion of our lives to Jesus. It is an all-or-nothing proposition. Either Jesus is Lord of all aspects of your life, all aspects of your being, or he is not. This means that if you think of your, your life as a house with many rooms in it, this means that there are no rooms or even the tiniest closet in your house or mine that are off limits to him. He is Lord of all or not at all. So if Jesus, the Lord of the house, which is your life, if he says as he's walking through and he sees something that's got to go, then you know what? It's got to go. And if he says, you know what? This has got to change, then it's got to change. And if he says there's something that we need to do, then we do it. And if there's something that we need to say, then we say it. And now, of course, no one in this process of sanctification will perfectly submit to the lordship of Jesus at all times or immediately. Sometimes we resist and there's that tug of war back and forth. But this is, my friends, to be our clear desire and goal is to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in every room of our lives, in every aspect. For the bottom line is this, if Jesus is not your Lord, then he is not your Savior. The two are inseparable. If Jesus is your Savior, then Jesus must be your Lord. So according to God's non-negotiable terms of salvation, either Jesus rules our lives or we do. It's one or the other. However, if you do try to have it both ways, (coughs) our our rule and reign over our lives versus the Lord's rule and reign over our lives, well, then those two things are set up on a collision course. And something's got to give. The following well-known story illustrates this well. The story goes, The captain of the ship looked into the dark night and saw faint lights in the distance. Immediately, he told his signalman, Send out a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Well, now the captain was angered. His command had been ignored. So he sent out a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am Seaman 3rd Class Jones. Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear it would evoke. Alter your course ten degrees south, I am a battleship. Then came the reply, alter your course ten degrees north, I am a lighthouse. You see, that captain believed 
that he was in complete command and control of his destiny. But the reality was that he was coming up against an immovable lighthouse built upon a rock. And he had more than met his match. Further still, the only way for the captain to avoid complete catastrophe and wrecking his ship upon that rock was to submit to the lighthouse's instructions and alter his course accordingly. My friends, it's the exact same for each one of us as we come up against the Lord Jesus Christ. Either we continue to stubbornly insist that we are in control and command of our lives, and we will inevitably end up wrecking upon the rocks, or we listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, And we humbly submit ourselves according to God's terms of salvation. We alter the course of our lives accordingly. And we believe and we confess, Jesus is Lord. You are sovereign. Your rule and reign is over every aspect of my life. So in closing, let me ask. Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is? is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, but you have not yet acted upon that inner belief, if you have not yet made that verbal declaration of faith, let me invite you today to call upon Jesus to declare that he is your Savior and Lord. For as Paul concludes in verse 13, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's promise. This is God's invitation to each and every one of us. So if you would like to receive Christ by faith today, pray this simple prayer along with me in your heart. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I believe that you died for my sins in my place upon the cross. I believe that you rose again from the dead. I confess my sins and ask for your forgiveness. I welcome you into my life as both my Savior and my Lord. Please lead me from this day forward. Thank you for my salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my friend, if you sincerely prayed that prayer from your heart for the very first time, welcome into the family of God, and I encourage you to tell someone, maybe the people you're with right now, that Jesus is now my Lord. God bless you. Go in peace.